On Bridging Theology, we aim to bridge the gaps between the academy and church so that believers across diverse denominations and backgrounds can develop a more intellectually vibrant faith. That's why we're partnering with Erdman's Publishing Company to bring you this week's episode. Erdman's is an independent publisher of thoughtful and engaging books for the benefit of the ecumenical church and the academy. From the finest new scholarship in theology, biblical studies, and religious history, to popular titles in ministry and cultural criticism, Erdman's books challenge and inspire readers across denominational and ideological boundaries. We are especially excited about women and the gender of God. Head over to erdmans.com to learn more. Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Kevin Hill. And I'm Beth Stavell. We're members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Candice Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, John Stavell, and Ryan Reed. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Amy Peeler. The Reverend Amy Peeler, PhD, is an Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, Illinois, and an Associate Rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva, Illinois. Author of Women and Gender of God, Erdman's 2022, You Are My Son, The Family of God in the Epistle to the Hebrews, TNT Clark 2014, and co-author with Patrick Gray of Hebrews, An Introduction and Study Guide, TNT Clark 2020. She continues to research, write, and speak on Hebrews and familial language in the New Testament. She received her BA in Biblical Languages from Oklahoma Baptist University, MDiv, and PhD in New Testament from Princeton Theological Seminary, and served as a Senior Research Fellow with the Logos Institute at the University of St. Andrews. She is an active member of the Institute for Biblical Research, Society of Biblical Literature, and a fellow with the Center for Pastor Theologians. Her current research includes a commentary on Hebrews with Erdman's. In addition to teaching, preaching, and writing, Reverend Dr. Peeler enjoys running, CrossFit, and time with her husband Lance, a church organist and liturgical scholar, and their three children. This conversation will have three sections or movements. We'll begin by discussing Amy's scholarship, and then we'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. And lastly, we'll talk about what we call the marginalia. These are fun questions that help us get to know Amy a little bit as a whole person. And while these marginalia are sometimes seen as the other things uh, outside or separate from our academic lives, we at Bridging Theology believe that these aspects of our lives inform who we are as scholars and as people in important ways. Amy, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so good to be with you, uh, Beth, to be with you again, Kevin, to get to know you. (laughs) And uh, we just always start with an icebreaker question. Tell us something about yourself most people don't know. Okay. Uh, The question that that I get sometimes and I think of, I worked retail right after college. Um, We were on our way to seminary after college, but we said, we need summer jobs and I'm going to do something like I'll never do again. Walked around the mall. And we're seeing who was hiring. And I end up at Victoria's Secret. And I was a bra specialist for the summer of 2002 (laughs) before I started seminary. So it was an interesting world, met some lovely people. And that was, I knew, you know, I would not do this again. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Which now that has all kinds of 
crazy connotations with that new song, et cetera. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I was, I was um, just kind of helping women out in a different way right. that I then now do in my scholarships. So. Yeah. Well, you've always <laughs> been supportive. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> well played. Well played. Thank Beth. you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for, for sharing that with us. And we're now going to transition <laughs> into some questions about your scholarship and how you see your vocation. Mm. So, Amy, you and I have been friends for a while, um, but those who aren't as familiar with you or with your work um, for them, can you share a little bit about your areas of research and writing and, and also what brought you to, to do this work, um, mm. you know, kind of that big picture of your story? Yeah. My mom is a teacher. And I was the kind of kid that always wanted to be a teacher. She's very good at what she does. And so I had a good mentor, a good example. But I didn't know what I wanted to teach until I discovered biblical studies. I took Mm -hmm. some electives as a junior, Greek and Life of Christ, and I was immediately hooked. I was always Mm -hmm. a very spiritually intuitive, very spiritually passionate young person. And then when I learned that you could study the Bible with your head too and your heart, I had changed my major truly within the first week from counseling. I wanted to do marriage family therapy and I changed to biblical studies uh, as a junior. So I had a lot of catching up to do. So really from that moment and because I had such excellent mentors at my college, I said, this is the life I want to be with students, to walk with them and help them discover the riches of God's word. And the fact that I get to do that, what I dreamed of when I was 20, is an incredible gift. So the specifics of scholarship, uh, once I found myself in an MDiv and then into a PhD program, I'm sure you all maybe had this day too. We had this paper that we would write in one of our theology classes. It was Old Testament, New Testament theology. And the rumor on the street was whatever you wrote this paper on usually ended up being your dissertation. So Hmm. it was like really heavy once you pick your paper topic for this. So I sat in my little carol one day. I was thinking about it. I was like, I know I really, really like Paul. And Paul's really, really interesting. And it's super crowded. And lots Mm. of people do, Paul. Mm -hmm. And I had always been intrigued by Hebrews. Mm. And Hebrews lends itself quite well to doing a Old Testament and New Testament paper together. (laughs) It keeps you honest. It keeps me honest in uh, Israel's scriptures. Mm -hmm. And because I had been intrigued by it primarily through the warnings as a teenager, I found those really chilling. And that was an important story in my own processing of my faith. And I had also found such beauty and assurance in Hebrews. Mm -hmm. I kind of sat there that day and said, this is where I'm casting my lot. And I did a paper on Exodus 24 and Hebrews 9. It eventually found its way into BBR. That's one of the first things I ever published. But that's where I decided Hebrews will be my place. Mm -hmm. And I've never regretted that. I'm in the final throes of finishing up this commentary, uh, God willing, really in the next few weeks. And I still love this sermon, love Mm -hmm. this letter. So that's been a significant part of my scholarly life. Mm -hmm. And within that, I got interested in God's fatherhood. That's what my dissertation is on. That's Mm -hmm. the title of the book indicates. And that's where I started asking questions about how do I reconcile the power that I'm finding in God's paternal name and characteristics in light of the very real critiques that are brought largely by feminist theology, womanist theology, and Mm -hmm. my own experience as a woman 
cutting into a world often dominated by men, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite put all of that together. And so mm-hmm. I said at my dissertation defense, this is what's next to mm. figure these things out. And that really is women and the gender of God is mm-hmm. the long labor of wrestling with those things. Truly mm-hmm. a decade plus one year, 11 years of mm-hmm. thinking uh, before that came to some sort of fruition. Yeah. I'm, I want to say as, as a woman in the field reading, it was such a powerful experience. And I'm so mm-hmm. thankful for your labor in that process to, to give something yeah. And many times I was, I was um, even overwhelmed in reading it mm. in a beautiful way. And so mm. just thank you for that, Amy. Yeah. And and praise be to God. I don't say that flippantly, but um, have, a, have a sense of, uh, maybe this lends toward the dramatic, but this is true for me. Have a sense that uh, this is part of why I'm here on earth uh, mm-hmm. to contribute to this conversation. And so mm-hmm. to see it, to hold it, to see it, it's not finished. I have more thoughts, more that I want to do, but it mm-hmm. has been an incredible joy uh, over the last several months to see this happen. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome to hear. I mean, when I was reading your book, there were multiple times where I just stopped and was really impressed. Mm-hmm. You'd ask some of the hard questions that were kind of in the back of my mind, and you'd tackled mm-hmm. them with clarity and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to circle back to a little bit of your biography first, sure. because you have one foot in the academy, mm-hmm. but you also have one foot in the church, like you're yeah. an associate rector. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Yes. How did you how did you come to be there and what is it like trying to have mm. one foot in in both institutions? Yes. If you would have told that piece of my biography to my junior college self, I would have not believed you and I wouldn't have known what a rector was. <laughs> <laughs> What is this thing of which you speak? I grew up Southern Baptist and had such wonderful training. I really had a healthy and beautiful experience in my home church. So much to be thankful for, but definitely did not have on the radar women in spaces of leadership. It was never made an issue. It, it, that, 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 was, that horse was not beat over and over. It just didn't exist. And so it was just not something I ever contemplated. As we moved through, and I say we because both my husband and I went to graduate school together. We're mm-hmm. actually high school sweethearts. We've been together for a long time. I tend to speak in we's. Um, <laughs> so when we were at graduate school, I was at Princeton. You know, I started, people would ask me, what's your call story? What's your vocation? And I would be like, "Who? to whom are you speaking? Because I've never had a call. I kind of like the Bible and I really like Greek. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. That was utterly new questioning for me. But being in that environment, I did not want to do an MDiv. I knew I wanted to do a PhD, and I was like, three years is so long, and fought that. But praise be to God that that's the way my path unfolded, because I was taught to do scholarship for the church, Mm -hmm. not for my own intellect, not for the esteem of the academy alone, but ultimately to serve the church. And that was very vibrant at PTS while I was there. I believe that's still their mission. Mm -hmm. And so being inculcated in more of an ecclesiology or an ecclesiological aim of scholarship was really formative for me, but it didn't really percolate until truly the last year of my PhD in which I was receiving invitations to preach or to lead out. I got an invitation to do a friend's wedding And that was the straw that broke the camel's back because I had to say no initially because I was, you know, not legal. I cannot do so. Mm -hmm. And that is what got me to think, you know, I have these nascent developing gifts of teaching. 
why would I not also share those at church? Why would I only share them in a classroom? Mm-hmm. Right about that time, we left Princeton and we went to our first teaching jobs at Indiana Wesleyan, which was an incredibly awesome, formative community that really taught us a great deal about the church. And that's where we kind of stumbled into an Episcopal church. This was not mm-hmm. a thoughtful process. It was, these are nice people. Some of them we teach the with. They love Jesus. They love the poor. We're here. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, my husband, it was a little bit more thoughtful because he had finished a PhD in liturgical studies. So he had thought about these things. Um, myself, not as much. And But we found this lovely community. And it was that pastor that I said, probably the second week we were there, I'm having questions about ordination. Can you help me? And he mm-hmm. met with me for a year to help me process and then set up a discernment committee. So we have cast our lot with the Episcopal Church, and that is not uncomplicated. No church body is without its complications. But now that I serve as rector, and I've been ordained for six years, almost seven, looking at seven in April, um, my church is very respectful that I have a full-time job in the academy. Majority Mm -hmm. of my time is here. But I see my vocational orientation and foundation as someone who has been by the Spirit set apart for the vocation of ministry. And so my, that status for me is fundamental. And then it just keeps me honest. Uh, people at church don't care that much that I'm Dr. Peeler uh, and my undergrads, you know, can dote on me, which is lovely, uh, but they're working hard people, important people. And I'm only there to serve them with my resources of the ability mm-hmm. to study God's word during the week. Mm-hmm. And they're wonderful, wonderful people. They keep me honest and real. Church is messy. And I think that's precisely where God is at work. And so I'm very grateful to get to be there week by week. I just want to pause real quick for any listeners who are listening to this and struggling with ecclesiology and, and mm. where do you fit and trying to, if you're trying to find a church, mm. uh, this is a theme you're going to probably hear throughout this podcast is many of us wrestle with questions of finding our, our church home mm. do mm-hmm. when there's disagreements. And I hope it's affirming that at least you hear this is not uncommon. So if you're in that space, um, yeah. you're not alone. Lots of us have been there. Yeah. And I would say also, you know, for women, the question of vocation and the notion that we would have a vocation story in the same way is mm-hmm. also something that many of us have a really different version of that. And so mm-hmm. I think that's also a really profound thing to that you've brought forward, Amy, in your mm-hmm. own story and is and resonates certainly with mine and many of the stories I've heard from other women mm-hmm. who ultimately were ordained, but it was a process right. to even sort of think of that as a, yeah. an imagination for themselves. And so mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. It's a fun Absolutely. thing that, uh, you know, I'm many of us academics, we have a plan, we stick to that plan, that God surprised that plan and uh, yeah. later in life took on a path that I couldn't have imagined. That's a delight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So now I want to circle back to your book because mm. it is just such an important work to engage with. Mm. And one of the things that I was particularly impressed with was that as you were asking questions about the gender of God, you focused on the incarnation right. and with all that it entails, including Mary as a lens by which to explore the question. Mm. And This is not an easy task that I'm going to ask you to do, but can you give our listeners at like a 10,000 foot overview level, an overview of how your argument works? Sure. Sure. No, that's, you've set up the question quite well. 
maybe it would be helpful to hear that I really was approaching the subject of the book from two different angles. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, my question was, how do we rightly speak of God? I've always found theological language questions very energizing intellectually, but they were happening while I was in seminary. That was a very prominent conversation among Presbyterians. I was not Presbyterian, but I knew they were talking about it liturgically. How do we speak of God? And I listened in and found those conversations. They deeply matter to people. And so that's always been something I've interested in. So that's kind of one aspect of the book. And then the Mary discovery was also very fresh. I've told this story before, so apologies if, if you might have heard it, but I was thinking about God's fatherhood. I was thinking about Christian identity as children of God, as brothers and sisters. And my dear friend and colleague, whom I teach with now, and we were at PTS together, he's an art historian who works on the iconography of Mary. He said, Mm -hmm. fatherhood and sonship, aren't you forgetting a piece? Why aren't you talking about the mother of God? And he didn't say it in a derogatory or an unkind Mm -hmm. way, but just, this seems like you're missing something. That was exactly correct. And so I very much with his guidance leapt into this material and then turned my attention to an exegesis of her story as others Mm -hmm. have done. My own teacher, Beverly Gaventa, has several books that are very helpful, Scott McKnight. Mm -hmm. There's been some Protestant work on this. It, It was a little bit you know, at this point, 10 or 15 years ago, there hasn't been a volumes of it from Protestants, uh, but I just found such wealth. So then it was the question of, I love this account of Mary, and I still have these questions about fatherhood, and really over the process of, now, now I said I've been thinking about these things for a decade plus. That is true. I really have been writing for four years. So I set out the writing at the beginning of a sabbatical in 2018 in Scotland, And it took a very long time for me to understand how these fold together. And truly by God's graciousness, what I ended up presenting then is that I asked three sets of questions, bodies, gender, which all I mean by that is how bodies function in the world. I know that's a very complicated term, but that's what I intend or or how to, what characteristics might be a less freighted word and then roles. And in each section, I consider both the divine God or Jesus and Mary. And Mm -hmm. so is God male? Absolutely not. Everybody says that. But why do we say that? And what would that have meant in the ancient world? Then I turn to Mary's body and Jewish purity laws. What does it mean that she houses God Mm -hmm. within the context of Judaism? Then I turn to characteristics, and this is probably where I've gotten quite a bit of pushback, and so I welcome conversation here. I have more to learn. I'm confident. But I make the claim, not only is God not male, but God, it is not fitting to call God masculine. And by that, I mean, if God is creator, which I affirm, if God initiates salvation, which I affirm, those are God qualities that I don't think is beneficial if we say those are masculine qualities. And I seek to show how we might untether those things. Mm-hmm. Some may say, well, that's, you know, everyone can be masculine or everyone can be feminine. I hear that, but I also point to ways in which that bifurcation between masculine and feminine mapped on to God and humanity has been quite detrimental for all humans and actually quite disrespectful for God because it is putting mm-hmm. God into creaturely categories. So that's probably the heart that was the hardest part to write and probably the most controversial. Mm-hmm. I also turn to Mary's agency, her actions in the world, and it is incredible 
incredibly important to me to show that she gave full consent to the invitation that was offered to her. Mm-hmm. Then finally, I consider uh, kind of uh, roles broadly. And here I turn my attention to Jesus and his maleness, the way that he what is embodied and navigated the world. But I pay attention to the virginal conception because his maleness came about in a way unparalleled from any other human male. And there is something, it seems to me, powerfully inclusive in his body, male body, who was made human from female flesh, from Mary's Mm -hmm. body alone by the power of the Holy Spirit. That strikes me as quite similar to the affirmation that we read in Genesis that the image of God is in male and female. There's a recapitulation Mm -hmm. of that in Christ. And then I pay attention to Mary, who is not only mother, and it's been interesting to hear from many single female readers who say, you know, I've struggled with Mary because I may not get married or maybe I can't have children. What does she offer for me? Mm-hmm. The New Testament gives us so much about her ministries. And yes, we know her because she's Jesus's mother. But for the person who we really could just focus on motherhood alone, she contributes so much to our story as prophet, as proclaimer, as influencer, a trainer of Jesus. So she is not simply a womb, but mm-hmm. a full-orbed human who mm-hmm. God invites and she says yes to participation in the kingdom. So that's the, the outline. There's an appendix, which is the first thing I ever wrote. This was a paper I had to write for te- for um, a promotion here at, at Wheaton. You have to write a faith and learning paper in which I take some of the critiques against God's fatherhood from feminist scholarship and try to answer them with a treatment from scripture. I really included that probably more for classroom use for those mm-hmm. who are in a gender and theology class. But I thought it was an important background to the mm-hmm. argument that I was making. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amy. You know, it's interesting. I was, as I was reading your book and this whole role of Mary and the place of Mary was really interesting to me as somebody before I went to Ambrose, which is a, um, you know, broadly evangelical institution, I taught at a Catholic university. And so it's this very interesting experience of drawing close to Mary in a Mm. new way. Mm. Um, And I was interested in to what degree you see I mean, your writing um, includes scholars of all different Christian traditions and beyond. Um, Do you see uh, ecumenical possibilities, ways in which your work draws together different parts of the Christian tradition? Mm. I would hope so. And this is a deep desire of mine, and I'm I'm hoping that it will be manifest in some way. One of the one of the sections there, actually, that chapter on Mary's ministry, chapter six, I first presented at Notre Dame. And I was really nervous how this might work. I'm entering into their territory. They were so mm-hmm. gracious, of course. But my hope is that I might, my community is largely Protestant. I recognize that's where I'm situated. So ultimately, clearly to say to them, friends, we might have really been missing out if we ignore her. And here's mm-hmm. all the wealth. My friend Matt and I, whom I mentioned, the art historian, we co-teach a class on Mary. We have for about five years here at Wheaton. And students, I don't think this is us, I think it's the content, are like beating down the doors to get into this class <laughs> because mm-hmm. they recognize that something's missing. So that's yeah. dominantly. I hope that my scholarship, that Catholic and Orthodox can look at it and say, you know, we may not agree with her life. We may not agree with some of her conclusions about ordination, but I hope they would see that I've treated, aimed to treat them with honesty and respect. 
Mm-hmm. And I do believe that Mary can be a common point. We've had several students do papers on Mary as a bridge between Islam and Christianity because they mm. have so much to reflect on Mary. And if she can be a bridge in that way, I would hope that she can be a meeting place for those of us who all are under the Lordship of Christ to have more conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Amy. Relatively early in your book, um, you make the point that theology has consequences. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think, no, theology is just this abstract subject and yeah. it doesn't doesn't really matter like on the ground. But you you give readers an example of this. Mm-hmm. And could you say something about this idea mm-hmm. of theology having consequences? Absolutely. And you know, I I really think that I was able to articulate that because of my good training dominantly at a Presbyterian school. So when I entered PTS, I was very committed to being Baptist. I felt like I explored some of my own Baptist identity and emphasis on human response. I still believe in that. There's still something really beautiful there. But I was taught to understand the sovereignty of God. And many of my professors did that well. I had several seminars with Beverly Gaventa, who always would turn us. And you can see this demonstrated in her own work. If we were talking about humans, she would say, but we need to ask the God question. Uh, What's the theology? Let's put that first. And so Mm -hmm. I think I just, that was ingrained in me and my training and my own doctoral advisor, Ross Wagner, did that in a different approach, but in a really powerful way. In a conversation with a colleague here at Wheaton, George Clancis, a church historian, that conversation sparked for me that the many instances of mistreatment of women that we see throughout Christian history and in the church, not to say that men haven't had their own difficulties. I I don't want to disregard that. But again, in my own situatedness, I did have to make a decision. I'm largely writing a book that concerns women. I had to make that call. Mm-hmm. In so doing, in seeing all of those failures, a common thread seemed to be it's not just that we don't fully value the image of God. And this puzzled me, honestly. We have this text that says that is fundamental to who we are, that all ima- all humans bear the image of God. My colleague, Isa Macaulay, will ask the same question of those who uh, supported slavery in the American situation, right? How is this possible for those who claim? to follow Jesus Christ. And and it maybe is then something deeper, right? That it's not just that we don't have a good view of humans for if humans are made in the image of God, then it could be that we have our image of God askew. Mm. And if that is gendered in a preference for the male and masculine, that is not fitting actually to text and tradition, that will have implications in how women are devalued And men are put on a pedestal that's impossible for them to perform. Mm -hmm. And I think you could trace out and see both. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was thinking about from, from a male perspective, even Mm -hmm. about how some sons and and daughters as well struggle with Mm -hmm. their relationship with their own fathers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they carry that baggage into Mm -hmm. their perception of who God is. Mm -hmm. And so if we can if we can deconstruct some of the preconceptions about the gender of God, mm-hmm. maybe that will free us up to think, um, you know, more more accurately, more gracefully about who this God is and yes. mm-hmm. the divine relationship to us. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I gave a paper 
years ago talking about a mother, like the mothering images of God in the Old Testament yes. and New Testament. And one of the women who was at the presentation came up to me in tears and she said, I work with women who've experienced sexual assault and violence. Some of them who've right. ended up on the streets. She's like to know that, that this isn't, there's not just this one image of God right. Right. is a gift to these women yes. um, as a starting place to recover their relationship to God to begin with. Right. And I really felt that when I was reading your book, I was thinking, oh, this is this is a space of recovery for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. No, Beth, I'm so glad and and um, Kevin that you, that you mentioned these things because the title of my book is provocative. It's not untrue. It is what the book is about, but it is articulated in such a way that people are like, what? And I think they initially think, even I had a dear conversation with a precious man at church and he said, oh, I can't wait to read your book because I know I'll learn about all these feminine images for God and how the Bible talks about it. I was like, what you won't, sorry, <laughs> that's actually not what it is. Yeah. Uh, because I felt like that work had been done so well and so mm -hmm. rich. And I hope I direct readers to footnotes if they haven't discovered it yet. The question I was taking up is, when you read the Bible and when you attend Christian churches, most likely you are going to hear a whole lot of masculine language for God. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. How do you have an a fitting theological framework for understanding the context of that language in our faith? So mm -hmm. I'm kind of addressing a problem or a question or a reality and hope that others will go to these plentitude of imageries that we have for God in scripture. We're now going to move to the second part of the show, which focuses on connecting scholarship to the church and Christian life. And so Amy, um, I have a question. Um, actually, it's interesting because I, I, I saw in your bio and I knew that your husband works in liturgical studies, but when I asked this question, I didn't realize actually how appropriate asking okay. you this question is. Great. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, you know, we have tendencies in different parts of Christian worship, uh, including Christian sung worship and liturgies mm -hmm. that tend to focus on God as father. Mm -hmm. Do you see your work as something that perhaps could uh, inspire or could help liturgists and worship wow. leaders as they are thinking of writing new kinds of songs, new ways of approaching these questions. And how would you see, how would you potentially see that um, just in, you know, imaginatively? Yes. Wow. What a wonderful question. I, I love that. You know, within our spaces as Episcopalians, there is not a great deal of innovation <laughs> that, <laughs> We really like old stuff. Uh, so this question is stretching for me because though I am married to the director of music and worship at my church, he, he does, and he is a composer, doesn't do a whole lot. Like we draw from things that have been around. But let me reflect on that question for a moment because I would hope that what my book could provide for that, and let, let me be clear, I think it's wonderful when there are new things and more contemporary worship. I'm very much like whatever draws you closer to God, express worship in that way. Beautiful thing. So for those who might be writing, it might be an invitation. Hmm. Sometimes I think in songs, fatherhood is focused on those characteristics of protection, provision. Those are not wrong things, 
But you all have both articulated the experience of men and women for whom those songs could be quite dissonant. And Beth, I've had a similar experience early on in this research, uh, people coming up to me and in tears saying, I want you to understand how hard this is. I was kind of presenting it like, isn't this intellectually interesting? And really was sobered uh, by how powerful and difficult this is. Mm -hmm. So maybe, and it goes back to something you said a moment ago, Kevin, could we have more songs, not about the kind of presenting qualities of God, which I would want to balance paternity and maternity, but even then I have quite a red flag because not all fathers are a particular way and not all mothers are a particular way. I am a strong mm-hmm. resistor to stereotypes, uh, gendered stereotypes, but to have more songs about the incarnation. And maybe this is mm-hmm. what I just love about yeah. early Marian hymns. I'm thinking like of Ephraim the Syrian, I, one of my professors at uh, Catherine McVeigh who studied him, there is a wealth of powerful poetic reflections on the paradox of God becoming human. In some mm. spaces, we're so familiar with that and praise God that we are, we live into that reality, but there is such power in stepping back to reflect on those juxtapositions of a babe, a helpless babe who holds the universe in his hands. Mm -hmm. I would love to see more contemporary settings inviting us to that moment. Um, And another poet that I quote from in my book that I've just discovered recently in love is Denise Levertov. Mm -hmm. I I have a line from her poem, The Annunciation, and God waited. And that was captured precisely what I wanted to get through in that chapter, but she has several Mm. gorgeous pieces. So there is much to reflect on there. I know I've kind of dodged your question or taken it in a different way, but um, any kind of like, hmm, I don't know, I might need to sit for a while. God is like this. I think if I were to write a song about God's characteristics toward us, I would want to do that reaching from many, many different images. Mm. And here mm. I'll mention a book of a fellow Erdman's author, Mallory Wyckoff. We we have been talking because our books came around about the same time, God is. And, mm. and there's some differences and there's some conversations to have. But she does a pretty good job of saying, you know, we have a lot of different ways of speaking. Or Kent Sulin's work, The Divine Names. There's lots of different modalities of naming God. I would yeah. want songs to press into that mm-hmm. to avoid the potential of ostracizing someone for whom either only paternal or only maternal images would be quite difficult. Because yeah. we don't kind of imagine what parents are like, fathers and mothers, and then say, oh, God must be that and really, really better. We pay attention to scripture And we pay attention chiefly to how did God father Jesus Christ, right? We only call God father because of our relationship of being caught up into Christ. So I think the more we actually start there, Mm -hmm. the more secure territory we're upon to think of Mm -hmm. God's fatherhood. So Amy, you wear a lot of different hats. um, And uh, we always like to ask um, our scholars who are joining us, what spiritual practices yeah. uh, help them and how mm-hmm. they connect to kind of all the different hats that they yes. wear. So I wonder that for you, you have a lot mm-hmm. of different hats. Mm-hmm. Um, are there spiritual practices that particularly sustain you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I haven't departed too far from my roots. Uh, I still have my quiet time every morning. And that's what we called it when I was in high school. <laughs> my students now call it the Devo. And I think that's a weird term. <laughs> Seems odd to me, but okay, whatever. Quiet time. <laughs> And of course, I'm not perfect, but definitely more often than not, I love early mornings. 
I'm sitting on my couch. I'm reading the Bible. I I do find the lectionary really helpful because I feel Mm. a little nervous if I just kind of let it fall open or if I only choose the stuff I read all the time. So I like the guidance of the daily lectionary. Mm-hmm. And I journal. Um, sometimes I'll read a book of poetry that's been true for the past several years, Malcolm Geit or mm-hmm. others kind of alongside scripture. But that's an unassailable part of my life. Mm-hmm. And then prayer, which really happens kind of through the day. Uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoy praying for others. Intercessory prayer has always been a meaningful space for me. Mm-hmm. And so that's a vibrant part of my spiritual life. Then church. If I don't go on a Sunday, I kind of don't know where I am in the week. Hmm. And the things that I wrestle through and think about, that's my reset truly week hmm. by week. When I hear, when I'm preaching, God is speaking to me. I do that hmm. monthly. When I'm listening to my colleagues, I'm learning. And of course, unsurprisingly, as an Anglican convert, right, I have the zeal of a convert, <laughs> weekly Eucharist, mm-hmm. I just, I cannot live without it. Yeah. Whether I am standing at the table, or behind the table. And yeah. and in the process of writing this book, and again, this has been about five years now. This is a long time. Mm-hmm. There's not a moment that goes by, a week that goes by, that I am not usually in tears recognizing I have no right to stand in this place. I, you know, I'm reading all week people who tell me I shouldn't be standing here. Mm-hmm. And I think I say this line toward the end of the book, but the Lord I meet at the table lifts my head and says I'm worthy. Mm. I recognize that's a statement that people might disagree with. And um, I'm not seeking to have a debate. I'm seeking to communicate Mm. the Jesus that I meet there each week and the value by virtue of his body and his life Mm -hmm. given. So that, that is a powerful moment. I have a spiritual director. When you enter into ordination in the Episcopal church, you're uh, demanded to start the practice of spiritual direction. I didn't know what that was. I knew an accountability partner. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I've had now two spiritual directors about over the past decade, one for five years, she passed away. And then I've had another for about five more. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's where I check in once a month, every six weeks, get some wisdom. She knows my life and my story sees patterns. That's really important for me. I recommend that not just for clergy. I think that's such a beneficial practice if you can Mm -hmm. find a good spiritual director. So those are things that keep me tethered for sure. Yeah. Your description of um, at the table, how God Mm -hmm. speaks to you. Um, This past Sunday, um, my son and I um, were the ones who did the Eucharist. That's Um, amazing. And so (gasps) it was a really beautiful thing. Wow. Uh, to to stand before and just to feel the the sense of God's presence with both of us as we mm-hmm. as we as we as we we were part of feeding the congregation yes. oh, with Christ. Wow. Um, it was really really beautiful. And so, anyways, I I I just really resonate with that. And uh, and a spiritual director for the past two years has just been life changing. So Good. thank you for that, Amy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could I tell a quick story just because I can't not like is it? But it reminds sure. me. Um, my daughter is now 15. She did the Magnificat uh, at a service mm. recently. My husband mm-hmm. was playing the organ. She was doing the Magnificat and I was setting the table. And I I was just like, this. I'm good. Like I can die, Lord. You can take me. I cannot bat- mm. imagine a better moment than all of us using our gift. I was like, I couldn't even take it all in. So it resonates wow. with when our children then are around yeah. the table as well. Uh, and this is how we see our marriage is like, we were created to serve the church as a unit mm-hmm. and we get to do that weekly. And that's a beautiful thing. That's wonderful. That's awesome. 
we're going to move to the last section of the show oh. now, which we call the marginalia. And this is a series of fun questions designed to help us get to know you a little bit better. So the first of our fun questions, uh, what is your favorite movie, film, or you could choose TV show, uh, and what makes it wonderful? All right. I tend to talk about this in theological categories. Like, you know, there's like God is above the line and then everything else is below the line, like creator creation, like an infinite qualitative divide. This is how I see films, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy is on the God side of the line. <laughs> I am not calling it divine. Please don't misunderstand me. But it is incomparable to any other movie ever produced by humans. Now, that dates me because, right, that was coming out in my 20s. We were in grad school, mm -hmm. a whole group yep. of us. Now, many famous people that you would know in theology and biblical studies all went to see the last film together at midnight in the theater. like. So yeah. it was a, but it, I think it's beautiful and it is incredibly theological from so many different angles. It's a good parable. Yeah. So and it's beautifully done. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> what is one of your favorite genres of music and why? That is a wonderful question as well. I'm fairly eclectic. One might imagine that being married to an organist, we listen to only organ. I can handle about 30 minutes of organ before I'm like, I'm done. Um, and if it's him playing, I'll listen forever, but, and he likes lots of things, but I really do like classical. I almost every morning listen to BBC three. So mm. I have an app. I very much fall in love with the BBC when we lived there in 2018. So I kind of listen almost every morning and they're so broad. They have instrumental and choral, and I just love radio three breakfast with Petrock Trelawney. Um, but I, when I'm working out, I really like rap. Um, I like hip hop. And when I am cleaning or running on Saturdays, and this has been true since like 2019, I still listen to Hamilton pretty much every weekend. <laughs> and I haven't gotten tired of it. And I think it is also deeply theological. I could, I'm planning a class someday, the theology of Hamilton. I could totally oh. make it happen. Uh, so can I that's audit, kind of, Amy? Well, I hope, <laughs> you know what? I want to bring in lots of different people. Um, I recognize there are, you know, non uh, PG things in Hamilton, but so too the Bible. So oh, yeah. it invites us into the human condition. So. That's a I little teach, bit of, yeah. <laughs> nice. I teach the Old Testament. It is definitely not PG. No, <laughs> no not at all. <laughs> um, what do you love about either the city you live in now or the mm. city where you grew up? Oh, that's a fun question. I'm going to pick the city where I live now. I love my family and I love going home to Oklahoma City. I feel very little tether to Oklahoma, and I hope that's not in disrespect, but because we spent our 20s on the East Coast, mm -hmm. I think we're much more East Coasters mm -hmm. than we are Oklahomans. Um, yes. So lovely, wonderful people would not go back. I love Wheaton. So I'll talk about that. Wheaton is a small town, and I actually love that. I bike to work. My children walk to school. We know people in multi-dimensions, people who serve my children. I know that I like a small community. I moved quite a bit growing up, and I think I maybe missed that and didn't even know, but I love the... Now, there are dynamics, right? We are Western suburbs. We are very white. I grieve that. I try in our We try in our church to work against that, but that's generational sin that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So 
we try to introduce our children to the fact that the most of the world is not as homogenous nor as simple or safe. Like I've never walked my door. Um, and, and they, these are just things I'm thankful for, but I also recognize they come with baggage and complication, mm-hmm. but we have a sense that God has planted us in this area. And we're really grateful that this has been home for 11 years. Awesome. Okay. I've got two quick questions for you. Sure. The first one's an easy one. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? I love it. <laughs> I, I can't go too, too many days without that question. So good. Excellent. <laughs> Well, I will inter- I will return your brevity. I'm on the side of many current scholars that seems to say Apollos is probably our best bet given who we know. I really do think this person is a friend of Paul, but I'm pretty committed to it's not Paul. And I know there's been a theory that it's Priscilla. I, I've definitely entertained, you know, read about that. I think it's probably a male given the masculine pronoun self-reference in 1132. But if it is Apollos, then Priscilla instructed him in the face along with Aquila. So we have some influence there. Uh, but yeah, I think Apollos is a good answer. <laughs> Very interesting. Awesome. Kevin. That's not a personal question. <laughs> I just had to ask anytime I'm with a Hebrews expert, I need to exactly, know. Exactly. Exactly. Gotta sneak it in the last minute of the show. It's like very, very last question. That's good. If you could have coffee or tea mm. with anyone outside of the Bible, any other historical ah. person, who would it be? Oh, I love this question. I just I did notice it and I reflected on it for a bit. One of my current well, not current. She's been a long time academic crush. And right by that, you just love their work mm-hmm. is Sarah Coakley. I have mm-hmm. had a yes. chance to meet yeah, her, awesome. but I, I would love to plumb the depths of her wisdom and her spiritual life. That would be just a complete joy. So that's the person that comes to mind first from history. Hmm. Oh, you said not the Bible. This is interesting. I was reflecting on this actually yesterday in the writing of my commentary. I have a very little to no personal connection with the author of Hebrews. That author is so circumspect with his own identity that Mm -hmm. I feel I love that text. I don't know or think about him very much at all. I cannot wait to hang out with Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Because I spend a lot of my time thinking about gender, I have wrestled with those texts of Paul most of my adult life. I I think he's wonderful. I'm not one of those feminists who doesn't like Paul. Uh, I was taught by Beverly that he's good for women, but I I truly would love to sit down in his own time and space. I can't deny there's a piece of me that's like really hopes that Paul would like me and would affirm my <laughs> vocation. I probably need to get over that. Uh, <laughs> but I would really really mm-hmm. like to sit down and say what what is your concept of redemption in Christ? Um mm-hmm. And, and who are you as a person? I know that's not what you said, but um, I think about hey, if, that quite a bit. If Kevin can ask, add a question, you can <laughs> add an answer. <laughs> exactly. Well said, Beth. Yes. So, yeah. Amy, it's it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the time and just the ability, I hope, to bring glory to God, to testify uh, and to stimulate more thought and conversation. Thank you. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. 